We're in Advent season, so we're going to be doing some Christmas-themed, Advent-themed messages. Advent means arrival or coming, uh, thinking about celebrating, remembering uh, the, the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the second coming of Christ. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy 2. Um, I'm just going to read two verses here, verses 5 and 6. You can follow along in your bulletins as well. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this tremendous opportunity to be together. It is no small thing that we gather together before you, and we do gather before you. We're not just gathered together, but through Christ, as the body of Christ, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God and innumerable angels and the spirits of the dead who have been made perfect, and to the blood of Jesus, That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We thank you that we come to you, the living God. And we come to you now to attend ourselves to your word. I pray that you give us uh, ears to hear, the help of your spirit to understand, and a heart that rejoices in the truth, and a heart that adores our Lord Jesus Christ, that we just sang about and to. In his name I pray, amen. I love some of the lines of the songs that we sing um, that talk about the, the darkness of the world that Jesus came into, the darkness of the world that we still live in, and yet the incredible hope that exploded on the earth when Christ came. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Christmas can be, of course, a real challenge uh, to some and, quite frankly, a complete letdown in some ways for, for, for many people. And I think one of the reasons for this is because we, if we're not careful, we can kind of have we can kind of give in to all the sentimentality of Christmas without the substance of it. Or we can have this idea that Christmas ought to be like, you know, one of the myriad of Hallmark Christmas movies that are played in our house for, from October till January. <laughs> you know, in those movies, everyone, everyone's together, everyone's alive, everyone's getting along, uh, everything's going great, and everyone will live happily ever after. And that's just not the way that life goes. Life is challenging, life is hard, and it's not, it doesn't take a pause for Christmas. And sometimes this, this season can only amplify our pain and our sorrows and our, our struggles and trials. But the glory of the Christmas story, the glory of Christmas, is so much deeper and more inviting than any Hallmark Christmas movie. It's more transforming than anything like that. And our elders and deacons meeting Thursday, Luke uh, 
you know, brought up It's a Wonderful Life. You guys, who's seen that movie? My dad watched that every year for Christmas growing up. I never watched it with him. I said, Dad, I'm not interested at all. And guess what we watch every year now? It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Luke brought up It's a Wonderful Life and says, the power of Christmas is like that scene when George walks into his house to be met by a bank examiner and the police officer or man of justice or whatever with a warrant for his arrest. And George walks in and says, I bet you it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. No matter what's going on in life, no matter what we face or what we may face that we're not even aware of right now, we can say life is hard, life is even devastating right now, and life may be hard in the future, but isn't it wonderful? Merry Christmas. And of course, as Christians, we would add, Christ has come. And it changed everything. And it's because of the truth of our passage this morning. This text, I think, gets to the central point of Christmas. It is what Christmas truly is all about. It's the foundation or the bottom of what we celebrate in the Advent season. And it almost reads like a short creed. It's almost like we could put we believe before the front of these verses. We believe that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If we don't understand this, we really will go through the season almost blindfolded, trying to, trying to enter into this joy that we think we should have, but it just seems to be missing because we don't get this. What's the glory that's wrapped up in this passage? If we do understand this, however, and if we understand it more deeply and rejoice in it, then we will find it fueling our lives during this time and running through and spilling over into everything else that we do. We make no apologies in our home for celebrating Christmas. We put up lots of decorations. We play music in our house a lot, Christmas music, and not just the ones we sing, but also other goofy ones too. And we enjoy giving gifts and receiving gifts and all of it because of, I would say, this passage and the truth of it. So this morning, my prayer is, my prayer is that we would grow in our adoration for Christ and our loving obedience to Christ. The point of our passage this morning and the point of Christmas is this. The eternal Son of God came to earth in order to bring men, it says men here, but it's just talking about mankind, men, women, and children back to God. That is the point of our text. That is the point of Christmas. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, eternally God, came to earth, became a man, in order to bring estranged, alienated, lost, depraved, sinful men and women and children back to God. Notice the word mediator. Jesus is the only mediator. 
That's what Christmas is about. The one and only mediator has come. There is one God, it says, and there is one mediator between God and men. A mediator is someone who stands between two offended parties and seeks to bring reconciliation. Now, if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of being part of a mediation here on earth, you know that doesn't work out well often, right? One one party might be happy, the other might be totally upset, or both parties might be upset. Jesus is the only mediator who can perfectly reconcile man to God. You and I need someone who can reconcile us back to God, the God that we have offended. That's not a popular thing today to say, right? God is only love. God is, God is only benevolent and kind and, and nice and all of that kind of, well, kind of like a nice Santa Claus, I guess. But, but, but we have offended God and we need someone who is able to reconcile us back to God. Our text says clearly that there's only one person who can successfully do this, and it's Jesus. There's one mediator. There's one way to God. This, again, is not a fashionable thing to say in our culture right now. We live in an age of tolerance, where everyone's view is equally valid, and everyone's beliefs are equally valid, and All of that, right? You have your way, I have my way. You have your path to God, I have my path to God. Ever heard this? Everyone's on their own journey. Whether they believe in Jesus or not. I've heard that said just recently. I was shocked by who said it to me. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's not another mediator, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is a kind of mediator, right? The father's mean and angry, and so Jesus has to mediate between us and him. And, but then there's this teaching that uh, regarding the, the judgment seat of Christ, where all of a sudden Christ became this terrifying figure, and so we need his mother to stand between us and Christ. And then, of course, they've added other saints to mediate between us and God as well. There's one mediator between God and man. It's Christ. Or more generally, the pluralistic spirit of the age, which says that there are many paths to God, or the new age teaching of the universal Christ. Ever heard of that before? The universal Christ, the Christ consciousness that everyone needs to have or that everyone eventually will come into even if they don't know it. All of that nonsense runs into the hard brick and mortar truth found here that there's one mediator between God and men and it's the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a glorious thing. And if you are here today and you belong to Christ, it's because he has achieved a perfect salvation and reconciliation for you. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. The eternal Son of God came to earth in order to bring men and women and children back to God. And then we see in our text 
It tells us that Jesus, our mediator, is the man Christ Jesus. We see that, that Jesus had to do something in order to be the kind of mediator that we need. He is the man Christ Jesus. He is not only God, but man. Think about this. The eternal God came down humbled himself, and he came down on a rescue mission. He came down, he came all the way down. He didn't come halfway down, and then we got to make our way halfway up to him. He came all the way down, and praise God he did, because in a million years of our best efforts and our best moments, we could never climb to him. George Whitfield once said, that it would be easier to climb to the moon on a rope made of sand than to climb up to God by our good efforts and works. Christ, in order to be made the mediator, in order to be the mediator that we need, he came down to us. We would have never been able to make it to him had he not come to us. But it's not just that God and Christ came down in the appearance of a human being, right? It's not just that he appeared to be human. Some believe that, that he came and, and, and he, was, he appeared to be a man, but he was just a spiritual being. In fact, we see that in the Old Testament where God appears to human beings. I think of Joshua, the captain of the Lord's army, appeared to Joshua. The appearance of a human being, God came in that way but he actually became man. The glorious, eternal God became a human. Hebrews 2 says that he was made like us, not just in most ways, not almost in every way, but he was made like us in every single way. I love, anyone else touched by that song that says, um, to our weakness, he is no stranger. He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. He was born to be our friend. He was made like us in every way. Hebrews 4 goes on to say he, was, he can be sympathetic toward us because he was made a human in every way. He's like us in every single way except one really important way. He never sinned. That's good news, right? <laughs> Amen. He never sinned. What humility, what stunning humility that God would come down to earth as a human being. That's what our text says. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, of course, Paul's the one who wrote this, right? He was writing this letter to Timothy. Paul wrote this, so Paul is affirming that Christ is a man, But he, of course, believed that Jesus was also the eternal God. Paul wrote one of the clearest New Testament passages exalting in the deity of Christ when he wrote this in Colossians 1. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth whether visible or invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus 
is the creator God and he came down to save us. That's not clear enough. John 1 opens, the, the prologue of John opens with the words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of Christ, right? This is a clear allusion to Genesis chapter 1, the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus, the eternal word, was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And then just a few verses later, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How can this be? How can, how can Jesus be both God and man? Right? The incarnation, of course, is a mystery that we can never plumb the depths of completely. But Jesus was not half God, half man. His divinity was not immersed into his humanity or the other way around. Jesus was, I heard somebody put it this way, 100% God, 100% man, but not 200% person. It's called the hypostatic union where the, 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 the fullness of his divine nature and the fullness of his human nature were joined together in one person. The two natures united in the one person of Jesus. We sing about it. We sing, I, hopefully we sing about it sometime in the next couple of weeks. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. When Jesus walked the earth, God was walking the earth in the flesh. It's stunning. It's amazing. The eternal Son of God humbled himself by coming down and taking on a human nature. One of the most important passages explaining this is Philippians 2, where it says, Though Christ, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, he did not account Excuse me, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says that Jesus, the God man, made himself nothing. This doesn't mean that he became less than God or some have suggested that he laid aside some of his divine attributes. But how could God do that and still be God? He didn't lay aside his divine attributes. He made himself nothing or emptied himself, other translations say, by laying aside his dignity and glory by taking the form of a servant. I find that fascinating. Taking the form, the, the literal word is slave. Taking the form of a slave. That's how low Jesus went. He clothed his divinity in the flesh of a fragile, weak, little baby. With fingers that could easily break and toes that wiggled like, well, like my little baby. The eternal son of God consented to be, being nursed by his mother, Mary. And having his diaper changed. Being born in a manger. And eventually, he consented to being subject to sinful, evil men 
who would crucify him. The eternal son of God came to earth in order to bring men and women and children back to God. Notice the next phrase. The God-man, our mediator, gave himself. I love that phrase. Paul says this in Galatians 2. Like Paul loves this idea. He said, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. If that never moves you, I just, I wonder if you have a pulse, a spiritual pulse. He loved us and gave himself for us. The God-man, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, gave himself for, it says, for all. Why is gift-giving a beautiful thing at Christmas? Because Jesus gave. Because Jesus gave himself. With our hearts full of this gift of Christ, we ought to, as we're able, we ought to give to those that we love. Now, I love how it says, it doesn't say that Jesus gave something. It says that he gave himself. If you merely give something to someone, right, something you own to someone, if I give something that I own to somebody else, then there's a limit on what, they've, what I've given them. But if you give someone yourself, then you withhold nothing from them. Jesus gave his entire being for us. What does, it, what does it mean that he gave himself? And I think we often would say, well, he gave his life. He went to the cross and amen, that's glorious, precious. But I think it means more than that. Think about this. Jesus gave himself in his incarnation. Jesus gave himself for us in his incarnation. He gave himself Hebrews 2.17 says he was made like his brothers, you and me, in every way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, so that he might be merciful and faithful in his gift of salvation to us. He gave himself in becoming like us in the incarnation and it was for our salvation. But also think about this, he gave himself for us in his life in the life that he lived, we believe that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And this is not just a side issue. This is not just kind of important. Pretty much the whole salvation thing falls apart if Jesus sinned once. One time. But think about why Jesus had to live a perfect life. It certainly wasn't for himself. He was already perfect. He, had, he was perfect from all eternity. He enjoyed fellowship, perfect fellowship with the Father from all eternity. Jesus is God, the one the angels declare holy, holy, holy. So why did he need to live a perfect life? He lived a perfect life for us. For us. He lived a perfect life for us as our representative before God. He represented us before God. 
theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. He was actively obeying the law of God and upholding God's righteous standards on our behalf or for us. I think it was Karl Barth, an old Swiss theologian. Um, he said the most important New Testament word was the word for. Christ gave himself for us. Christ lived a perfect sinless life for us on our behalf, in our place. And it's so important that he lived this perfect life for what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? It's more than just having our sins forgiven. It's more than just having God say, not guilty, forgiven. It's more than that. It is to have God say, just righteous, accepted perfectly forever. How can we receive that unless Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live for us? He did. There's a, there was a, 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 a theologian named uh, J. Gresham Machen. He, he, uh, he was a pretty important theologian in the early 1900s to about 19, I think he died in like 1935 or something. And uh, he start, started a, a Westminster, Westminster Theological Seminary. But he said something profound. He was on his deathbed. He sent one final telegram to a friend. And he said this, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live for us. And then, of course, finally, he gave himself in his death. As the sinless, spotless lamb of God, he gave himself for us to be lifted up on a cross and have the full judgment of God fall on him instead of you and I. He took our place on the cross. Alyssa wrote a song a few years back. Maybe it's, been, it's probably been further back than a few years, maybe 10 years ago. And there's a line which beautifully sums us up. And it says, you took my place and all my sins erased. The eternal son of God came to earth in order to bring men, women, and children back to God. And finally, there's one more phrase we have to look at. He gave himself as a ransom. A ransom. Ransom is a, is a payment given in order to redeem someone or free someone. I remember some time back reading about Frank Sinatra's son, that was kidnapped, 1960s, I think. And uh, a ransom was demanded. And Sinatra Sr., I think, I think the son's name was Frank as well, Frank Sinatra Sr. immediately put up a ransom of $240,000. A ransom is a payment that's made in order to free someone. As our mediator, Jesus, the God-man, gave himself as a ransom. But it begs the question, who does the ransom payment go to? You ever thought about that? Who gets the ransom payment? 
Some have, historically, some have thought, that, and probably still today, some have thought the payment went to Satan. Right? He, he needed to be, be paid off. He needed to be bought off, right? He needed, he was extorting from God a payment. Now, there's several problems with that. Of course, to start with, the Bible never suggests that we owe the devil anything. But also, the devil is an absolute rebel. And it would be, in a, in a sense, it would be blasphemous if somehow the devil could strong-arm God into, into extorting money from him, or a payment, not money. It is God who's holy that we owe a debt to. Right? Jesus told the story of the, 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 the rich, wealthy man who forgave his debtor, who owed him in today's currency, millions of dollars, just forgave it, wiped it clean. It is God that we owe a debt to, and it is God who demands a ransom to release us from the condemnation that we rightly deserve because of our sin. This is... This is what makes the words of Jesus on the cross so stunning and beautiful. According to John, the Gospel of John, the final words of Jesus, do you guys know what they are? Three words. It is finished. Literally means paid in full. The ransom was paid in full as Christ breathed his last It was with the precious blood of Christ that we, have, that we have been ransomed. And it's amazing. We have been ransomed for God. Revelation 5.9 says, speaking of the song that was sung or is sung in heaven, to the Lamb it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We've been ransomed for God. We've been purchased for him. Remember, Jesus came to bring men and women and children back to God. We need to get out of our mind. If there's any perverse idea in our mind that the Father's the unreasonable, angry God and the God of bloodlust, like he's just waiting to pounce and destroy people, and Jesus is, you know, the one who kind of timidly comes to the Father and tries to placate him, we need to get that out of our minds. We are ransomed for God so that we can know him as our Father. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians 4. Four and five, when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see it all there? God sent his son to redeem those who were lawbreakers. You and me, lawbreakers. Every day of our lives, he came to redeem us in order to reconcile us back to God as our father. 
amazing, the father wants children. <laughs> he wants a house full of children. He sent the son to pay the price for us to be adopted into his family. God is holy and cannot look on sin. We were reminded of that yesterday morning um, when David Bryan shared a verse that God is holy, that he, he is unable to look on sin. Sin is high treason against the God who made us. And I don't think we, th- I don't think, we think about that as much as we ought to. Sin is treason against God. And so the Father undertook himself to send the Son to redeem us, and Jesus willingly and gladly came. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, as we were singing this morning, and um, there was a song that we sang that it had ransom in it. I can't remember which one it is. But it, it made me think about we've been ransomed for God. To be ransomed is to, to have a payment paid in order to free, redeem or free. And I thought, the thought entered my mind that we have been ransomed for God so that we are now free in one sense from sin. We are free from sin. We have, we're free certainly from the, the consequences of sin and the power of sin has been broken if you've been ransomed by Jesus. And that's, that's another part of the glory of Christmas, right? Is that we now, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which primarily in that context, 1 John 3, is sin. Jesus came to destroy sin, By taking it upon himself on the cross, he came to destroy sin through the power of his Holy Spirit and the life of every ransomed child of God so that you can now live free from sin. Progressively free from sin, okay? But but increasingly free from sin. I think maybe some people needed to hear that today. It just came to me during worship. It's like, I think I need to hear that. God sent his son into the world to bring you back to him, to bring you back to himself, to bring you in one sense, you an alienated, orphaned child, to bring you home, into his home, into his family. And of course, this also points forward to the future hope that we have in Christ. I love Isaiah 35.10 that says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and and and, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Have you been reconciled to God? <clears throat> Has this media, have you met your mediator, Jesus Christ? Amen. Have you met him? I'm not saying have you heard about him. I'm saying have you met him? Do you know him? 
Do you know the one who came from heaven to earth, left his throne above to come down to this place? Do you know him? Left infinite riches to be born in a manger, in a cattle stall, to be a slave. Do you know the one who gave himself for you? Do you know him? Do you know the one who gave his life up on the cross, pouring out his blood to ransom you? And I want to say it again. I'm not saying, have you heard of him? I'm not even saying, do you attend church? Are you religious? Are you a spiritual person? I'm saying, do you know him? That's what Christmas is about. Uh, What song? I think it's Joy to the World. Let every heart... Prepare him room, right? Like that, that, that manger in that cattle stall that God had perfectly prepared for that baby to be laid in. Is your heart full of Christ? Do you know him? My prayer is that this truth would be central in your life this Christmas. And if you face disappointments, and if you face loss, and if you face pain, and if you face suffering, that because this is true, not in some abstract way, but because it is true to you, you will be able to say, isn't it wonderful? It's Christmas. Christ has come. He gave himself for me. He has brought me home to God. Isn't it wonderful? It is Christmas. Let's pray.